this idea, this very simple idea that the, the, the faces, the souls, the images of people who look like me are beautiful and very worth uh, exploring and excavating and cataloging and documenting and dramatizing and, and, and rhapsodizing, um, that's always been a driving force. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode features the DGA Special Projects Committee's recent event, The Craft of the Director, Barry Jenkins. This series of conversations with master filmmakers features an in-depth discussion about the directing process, from pre-production through post. Mr. Jenkins' 2016 feature, Moonlight, garnered a DGA Award nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film earned eight Academy Award nominations, and won Oscars for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture. His other directorial credits include the feature films If Beale Street Could Talk and Medicine for Melancholy, an episode of Dear White People, and the limited series The Underground Railroad. Please enjoy the conversation between Mr. Jenkins and DGA President Thomas Schlamme. In front of a virtual audience, they discuss Mr. Jenkins' early short films his termite-like desire to search for unconventional shots on a project, and how he sought to connect the Underground Railroad to today's America. So before we start, though, I just want to be uh, a little effusive, and then I, I promise I'll step away from that, and I, I won't embarrass you too much. But, uh, you know, I, I, it's been an enormous pleasure the last couple of weeks to be sort of living in your work uh, and sort of really revisiting that that I knew, which was Moonlight and, and Beale Street. But then uh, having the enormous uh, good fortune to experience um, Underground Railroad. Uh, and, I, and I really mean good fortune. As difficult as it was sometimes, uh, I just feel enormously blessed that I had that experience. And I hope everyone else does too. We're going to talk quite a bit about it. So I hope there's not a lot of spoilers in there. But uh, many of these people, I think, have already seen it. Uh, but I also got to visit you know, and, and experience your first film, uh, Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, and as well as I called you in your office to get a bunch of shorts that you had made. And <clears throat> so I went back and I looked at those shorts. And after I looked at everything, I just came away with this enormous awe of the profound ability you have as a storyteller and the stories that you're telling, but also <clears throat> of the, the craft that you're able to use to help facilitate tell those stories is kind of unbelievable. And what I realized is even your themes, the themes of, of loneliness, the themes of love, the uh, parental love, sens sensual love, uh, uh, romantic love, the lack of it, the abundance of it, uh, identity, racial um, injustice. And for me also, you know, correcting the American cultural history. Mm. What I've, and what I realized is all of those things were operating in these first films that you were making. Uh, and so was a lot of the craft. And so I started to think of Underground Railroad as this massive hologram of sort of everything that you've done is sort of in this 10-hour uh, film that you've made. But like any great hologram, if you drop them and they crack, each piece uh, has all of the information as the large hologram. And so to me, that's where I'd like to start. I'd like to go back and look at those, uh, some of those early pieces. But more than that, I, I, and I, I will, we'll spend most of this time on craft, but, you know, 
craft is only as good. It's not the technology that you use. It's the person who uses the technology. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just, I, I, I know something about your childhood. Most of us saw Moonlight and know that at least in the first section of Moonlight, that's a lot of uh, experiences that you had along with the playwright. Uh, so it was clearly a difficult childhood and, and that was, um, or, or a hard one at least. Um, but I'd like to go to like this moment in time for most of us around 17, where you're about to graduate from high school, you're sort of seeing the horizon line and trying to figure out where I'm supposed to go and how do I fit in here? Uh, do I go off to school? What do I study? Who am I and who am I going to be? I'd love just to find out wh where you were at those moments, what you were seeing and what you were feeling to get to the point where you're on the set of My Josephine. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, like you said, thank you for a wonderful introduction. Um, I don't know if chocolate people can blush, but, uh, but, but, but I was <laughs> blushing uh, quite a bit there. Um, yeah, as you said, I grew up in the same world um, as the character Little of Moonlight. Many of those places and spaces um, are the places and spaces that Terrell Alvin McCraney, the playwright, and I grew up in. And so it was, but yeah, you, you always, you have a way of contextualizing your condition and children are very resilient. Um, and so you're right, it wasn't, it didn't seem extreme or difficult to me at the time. It kind of just was. And I remember I was in high school you know, all of my friends were playing football. And so I played football. They were running track. So I ran track. I was actually pretty decent at it. Um, you know, I went to the I state. Both track and football? Uh, I was better at track than I was at football, only because the football players I played with were guys who went on to the NFL. You know, there were three running backs on my high school football team. Uh, two of them made it to the NFL. The other one is talking to you. Um, that's how good uh, the, damn, uh, the damn program was. Um, but I remember between junior and senior year, I realized, oh, I think I have to go to college um, somehow. And uh, this guidance counselor named Ms. Ms. Pamela Strogier, she pulled me aside and sat me down and said, hey, you're not eating lunch today. You're going to fill out these forms. And so I applied to all the state schools. Um, and I'm not the first person in my family to go to college. I was the second. My sister, uh, who's 10 years ahead of me, she went to, to a very small college called Florida Memorial College and HBCU in South Florida. And uh, I just couldn't afford to go anywhere except the big state school. So I applied to the University of Florida and Florida State. And I got into the University of Florida. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll go and walk onto the football team at the University of Florida, which was never going to happen. Um, but uh, I went through my senior year. Um, I regressed as an athlete. People I was better than as a junior were not better than me as a senior. I thought, oh, you know, that's because I'm still 5'8", and they're now 6'1". You know, I should probably give this up. Um, but I took a, a visit with some of my friends, uh, some of my homeboys, went to Tallahassee to visit Florida State. And it was just, it just felt like family. And it's interesting because so much of, of my life and my career has revolved around not necessarily choosing people based on skill or, or a skill I didn't know at the time, but based on status. It's always a vibe. You know, Nicholas Bertel and I are kind of joining at the hip right now, but famously, when I first agreed to work with him, I never heard any piece of music he had composed. It was just a really great vibe. Same thing with Tallahassee. Even though I grew up a diehard University of Florida uh, Gators fan, I decided to go to Tallahassee and go to Florida State just because the vibe with my friends was better. And then, of course, after about three years of being there, uh, because we all were athletes in high school, we knew some of the guys on the football team. And they had a very fancy cafeteria that was in the stadium. 
where anybody could eat, but nobody knew about it. So only they ate there. So we would go and eat where the athletes ate in the stadium. And thankfully, Tommy won't be having this conversation, but the Florida State Film School is also in the football stadium. So I kept walking by the sign that said film school, film school. And then one day I thought, you know, I like movies. Um, and I was, I was in the creative writing program at that time. I was like, oh, maybe I can write screenplays. And uh, I applied. And they only admit uh, 30 kids a year. Um, and yet somehow, I think through my, my work in the creative, uh, creative writing department, um, I got in. Um, and then uh, a year and a half later, I was standing on that set uh, making my Josephine. So it was a really strange way of stumbling into it. And it wasn't until I was on that set and we were making that film you know, it's crazy because you talk about the Underground Railroad. I was on that set. Adela Romanski was on that set. Producer of the Underground Railroad. Mark Serak was on that set. Producer of the Underground Railroad. Joy McMillan was the production designer. She's the editor on the Underground Railroad. And uh, James Laxon was the DP. Um, I never could have could have written a path from my high school to those folks and to that set. Um, and yet uh, there I was. So fine dining actually is what got you into filmmaking. You know, it's funny too, because uh, <laughs> after Moonlight uh, had its war season, we got invited back to Tallahassee and I went back to that cafeteria and, you know, <laughs> no shade to Florida State or, or the athlete dining hall, but I was like, this is what we were so obsessed with. <laughs> it's all it's all carbs, man. It was all carbs. <laughs> uh, and what, uh, what were your politics at that time? I mean, were you an activist at all at Florida State or? It's interesting. I, I, I wouldn't say I was an activist. Growing up where, where I was, you know, I was very, you know, left Democrat. You know what I'm saying? There, there's so much about the, 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 the laws and governance, the systems of governance in the state of Florida, particularly in the state of Miami, that disenfranchises black folks. And growing up in the community, the community that I grew up in, I was very aware of those things. Um, but it's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that because we had to take a documentary course um, at Florida State our freshman year when we were in the film school program, the first year of the film school. And myself and a guy named Justin Barber did make a documentary uh, because, man, uh, the youth, I love them. Uh, this group was protesting the university using sweatshops to manufacture its uniforms. And so we made a documentary um, on this, uh, this tent city that sprung up on the campus green, myself and Justin Barber. And we actually almost got kicked out of film school again because of activism, I'm almost not talking to you uh, because the protests kept going, but the semester ended. And so we never finished the film. We just kept filming and filming and filming. And they were like, guys, you got to make the film. We were like, no, no, but the story's still being told. Um, and so, yeah, I guess maybe uh, I was a bit left. Um, um, but I never, I never I mean, and then you did that. after my Josephine, but I want to go back to my Josephine. Mm -hmm. You did Little Brown Boy too, right? Which I was, did. I did. That was a, a pretty powerful piece. I mean, uh, uh, thank you. You know, the, when I was in film school, I remember the first semester in film school, 9 11 happened. Um, and it was, it was wild. I know exactly what I was doing and where I was sitting um, when that began. I was in a camera and lighting class, and the professor walked out and they came in in a daze, and he was just like, yeah, everybody go home. Um, and I remember that feeling and my Josephine, uh, I understand now where the question came from because my Josephine, which is for anybody watches who hasn't seen it, is just a short film about an Arab American couple who run a laundromat and they're washing American flags for free, you know, as a sign of patriotism. Uh, because at that time, right in the aftermath of 9-11, even in the, even in the South, the place of Tallahassee, there was this, this rise of, of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment. And people were saying, oh, being Muslim or being Arab is the new black. 
It's like, oh, I know what it means. feels like to be a black man in the South. Maybe I can use my experience to empathize with these people, you know, to sort of show if you really think being Arab as, as, as the new black, this is what it's always felt like to be a black person in the South. That's what the short film came out of. And I never thought of it as being activist. It was just emotional. You know, I wanted to find a way to identify and understand what those folks were going through. Um, and that was where the short film came out of. So, uh, in my Josephine, um, <clears throat> I, I, now I got, and it made sense, it, it seemed like it was a reaction to 9-11. It was. Uh, and it, clearly that. Uh, but there are a couple of things in it that I just want to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And one is, it's all voiceover. Uh, and that might have been limitations had to lead to opportunity. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. But I also know that, you know, at that point, you were being deeply influenced uh, by Wangar. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and Chung King and, and his voiceover. Um, so, uh, number one, I want to ask you about the choice of doing it all voiceover. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there, I want to talk about one shot in it and then relate that to something uh, that you did 20 years later. Cool. Yeah, I mean the that that film, you know, for anybody who who uh, who is not a Barry Jenkins stand or or thinks I'm I'm full of shit or shit director, this might be interesting to hear. But James and I are still working in the same way. You know, that film was so much just gut and instinct. You're right. I was obsessed with Wong Kar Wai at the time. I had never seen a film like a Wong Kar Wai film because again, the background I came from, I didn't grow up worshiping uh, films or or cinema uh, of any kind. And in the first semester of film school, I decided I didn't understand the craft enough to, to compete with my, I shouldn't say compete, but to make films alongside my peers. This guy, Wes Ball, was one of my classmates. So I actually took a year off from the film school. I asked the dean politely if I could pause my curriculum and, and do my own sort of like study abroad. And that study abroad was the foreign film section at Blockbuster Video, because uh, I felt like everybody was making things in the image of what they were watching. So I wanted to watch things no one else uh, in this film school was watching. And so I just went through the foreign film section indiscriminately picking things off. And Wong Kar Wai was one of the one of the filmmakers I fell in love with. And so I thought, yeah, I'm gonna use voiceover. This will be great. Um, and then I was watching the show, this cooking show called Nigella Bites. And uh, it was a really cool show. They shot it on film and they had these really cool transitions where they would just go completely out of focus and then come back in focus. That's where all the focus stuff came from. <laughs> and, and I think when you're a film student, especially an undergrad film student, and the beauty of the Florida State Film School is they pay for everything. You know, I'm a kid who grew up Section 8 housing, and I went to college on a Florida lottery scholarship, which right now the Florida State Legislature, which is very right, is trying to repeal. There, if, if Barry Jenkins was in film school right now today, they're trying to enact a law where these scholarships are only applicable to people in finance or people in accounting, not to people in the arts. But I didn't have to pay for tuition. The film school provided all the camera equipment. We shot everything on film. They provided all the film and they provided all the processing. So you could really swing uh, for the fences. And so I had a roommate who was obsessed with Napoleon Bonaparte. He was obsessed with Napoleon and he would just walk around the apartment that I shared with him and James Laxton. And he would just be spitting off all these facts about Napoleon, one of which was that Napoleon had two lovers, um, uh, Josephine. Uh, and Mary Louise. And so that's why the title is called My Josephine. So all these things just came together um, in this short film. So the voiceover was intentional. What wasn't intentional was all the elliptical edits. What happened was, again, we're film students. We're trying to unload the mag in the mag. <laughs> um, what, what, what do you used to call it? Because we don't shoot on film anymore. 
but the mag spaghetti and it got all these light leaks in it. And when we got the footage back, I was like, oh, this is dope. We can use these like Odon, the jump cuts and like uh, and the light leak edits. And so all those things kind of resulted in this random bat of a film that's about what it's like to be uh, Muslim uh, or Arab in America and a post 9-11 America. And voiceover, is it something that you gravitate towards when you're writing? I mean, certainly in Beale Street, for instance, it's, it's a it's, very powerful element in Beale Street. I want to ask one quick question about voiceover in Beale Street. Yeah, Have please. you ever noticed that uh, Tish, T Tish, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, that her voiceover sounds very similar to Sissy Spacek's voiceover in Badlands? I have not, and that was certainly not intentional, not intentional. Uh, but it's the innocence of a child. I mean, of a, a young person's voiceover. It's a really, listen to Badlands, you'll go. Oh. It, it is not intentional. And again, I, I get accused of ripping off Malik enough, but I got to say it's not intentional. <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, Kiki and Tish are speaking the voice of Baldwin there. And I think because it was Baldwin, I felt comfortable uh, relying on voiceover. I wanted his, his text is so powerful. Um, I wanted the text to reach the screen intact. And so having her recite his words uh, felt like the best, the most direct way uh, to do that. With the Underground Railroad, I, I didn't want voiceover. Um, I think that one of that is in the adaptation, you got this difference between showing and telling, and the author can tell everything. I thought there was something very powerful um, and challenging about creating uh, a depiction of this world and this character where even when she's not able to verbalize her feelings, her emotions, her reactions to the stimulus on screen, she can externalize it through posture, through eye contact or eye uh, evading. And so we made the choice uh, very early on to not have voiceover in the underground railroad, even though, oh my God, Colson's one of the greatest writers on the planet right now. Um, but but I didn't want to use it there. So it was interesting because yeah. when I was watching it at the very beginning, that opening, there is a little voiceover moment. Just one line, just yeah. the one line. And, and it's right at the beginning. So I thought, oh, this is uh, we're going to have Cora's voiceover talk about her mother. And, um, so. you know, sometimes because when I was in film school, I was taught very diligently. Uh, if you're going to have voiceover, it's got to be in the first minute. You know, or if you're going to have this, it's got to be in the first minute. Sometimes you evolve and you go, oh, well, let me run this thing counter to expectations. We have this one line in the first minute, and then there's not a single line of voiceover for the next nine hours and, and 59 minutes. So the other thing in, in My Josephine, uh, uh, and relatable to later, but um, was there's one shot in My Josephine, and I'd love to hear about how you and James sort of did this. And usually in a student film, and certainly a first student film, there's a lot of very bold choices sometimes being made. And sometimes those choices are fantastic that they made them, but they're glaringly a bold choice. Mm. But you actually made it what I thought to be a very bold choice in that film uh, by having a point of view from inside of a washing machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a beautiful image because it's so about the story. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's the washing machine's point of view in some way. It's like the... Uh, and we're seeing this couple sort of spinning around, which was both what I thought about their relationship in some mm -hmm. ways, but also about this country that we must have been living in at that time in 2003. Mm -hmm. So I just found it a, a, an incredible choice. I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember talking to James? I, 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 do, remember. It or? I do remember. And in the foreground of that shot um, are these flags that they're washing yeah. free, the tenants. Um, I, I do remember, and, and, and again, uh, you know, we're still operating the same way. So maybe we're just, we're still film students. We're undergrads, you know, and our work is shit. Um, 
or is that or sophomoric, but uh, I'm a sponge, man. And, and I was so overwhelmed by the craft of filmmaking when I began. I mean, I left that film school with my tail between my legs after that first semester uh, because a kid like Wes and Wes and I are still friends. You know, this is now this is nothing against Wes, but he was so brilliant. He was remaking Pixar shorts on a Bolex camera, doing all in-camera effects. I mean, he was just brilliant and still is. He's one of the most gifted filmmakers I personally, I personally know. So I left that film school with my tail between my legs and I took a still photography class. I felt like I just had to understand the craft. I had to master the craft. And because of that, when I was on sets, uh, because at this school, you'd have to boom up, you know, you'd be the sound recorder, you'd be a, a grip, a gaffer, all these different things. I was just watching all the tools and trying to figure out what can that tool do. So one day on this set, actually it was on a set prior to this, I noticed that our Steadicam operator, who was one of the kids, he would put the Steadicam on the stand and kind of to show off, he would just spin it around. He would just spin it around. And I, I was always trying to put myself in the lens to understand, well, what is the camera seeing right now? And it was spinning, but it was because it was just a kid. It was awkward when it was spinning. It was like jumping around and bouncing. He shouldn't have been doing it. I was like, man, he's going to wreck that steady cam. But then I thought, yo, that would be dope if we just filmed that. Um, it would be the perspective of these flags in this sort of a washing machine. And so on the night we were filming, because we were shooting on film, we only had maybe 1,200 feet. So every shot's got to count. And so I wasn't sure we were going to do it. But late into the night, um, I realized that no. We should do it. And so we did a take where it's just the steady cam up. He's just spinning uh, the camera on the stand. And we're all just hoping it doesn't jump off uh, the rig and crash. Uh, and it didn't. But it might have been water light leak happened. It's really good, though. It's really good. It also reminds me of often when I'm shooting and we're just moving from, uh, okay, we're moving to the next location. And the dolly grip will just start to push the camera. And nobody operating it. Monitor, I've like, never shot anything that interesting. Yeah. Ever in my life, I've never shot anything that interesting. And I'm going, how do we go back and get that? How do you do that? Uh, you know, so you, have to, you know, on our sets, James and I, we're always trying to anticipate those things. We put out this this thing called the gaze. It was kind of like an addendum, prologue or epilogue, I don't know, to the Underground Railroad. And that kind of happened the same way. We were waiting for the sun to go down. And a piece of track had been left there, and the, and the you know the the the, the fissure was on it. And I thought, man, let's just throw a camera on there and get some of the background actors in front of it. And we just ran over and did it, and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. We should keep doing this whenever we can. And then we start to plan it into the day. And yeah, I think there's there's these really lovely bits that happen. It's such a machine what we do sometimes, such a machine. But that machine is harnessing so much magic. And so I'm always, even now, I've, I've taken it from film school with me, I'm always looking, what the hell is happening on the set right now? What, every time I see a steady camp sit on the rig, I'm like, what is it looking at? <laughs> um, in, in Moonlight, there are these flashes between the chapters, these yeah. red and blue lights. That's because, you know, we're filming in Miami, and so it rains a lot, or something's happening. I would see the AC put the slate right up against the lens to cover it, and the time code would be ticking. And that close to lens, it just looks like this almost phantasmagoric sort of image, but it's literally time code. This time is slipping. And so I walked over one day, and don't, don't get me in trouble with the guild. I just pressed the button. I said, <laughs> it, it's it, 600 it's, that's going to be upset with you, not us. Exactly. 
And, and then whenever the whenever the AC would put it up in front of the lens, James knew we would just run off a few frames. And and we were we were in the edit. Like, oh, can we look up this thing? And that was like, what? It's like, oh, we got this thing. It's like time code out of focus, and we actually put it in between the chapters. Um, just little like that is where the fun happens. But I think that goes to who you are, Barry. Obviously, which is that you're that open to. Mm-hmm allowing these experiences it's a little bit goes to the vibe idea and a few of the other things that we're going to talk about Uh, Mm -hmm. so um i'm going to jump to just uh since we're talking about james uh Mm -hmm. well actually one of the things i want to talk about is the point of view Mm -hmm. uh to jump to uh underground railroad Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about the point of view in episode one Mm -hmm. uh and the point of view of it's big anthony i think big anthony Mm -hmm. is the gentleman's Mm -hmm. name uh, and how you came up with that and uh, what you were trying to say with it, it, it is it, it is so enormously powerful and, mm-hmm. and both stunning when you see it, I mean, and startling. Uh, but uh, I think is where I've heard you talk about, you know, how do you still show somebody's mm-hmm. dignity under mm-hmm. the, the absolute horror of what uh, he has to go through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of it came out of, and what, what Tommy's referencing is, the sequence, um, you know, near two thirds of the way through the, the pilot episode where this character, Big Anthony, um, is, is uh, hung by his wrist, uh, whipping and burned um, alive, uh, which is taken from the book and also in my research is taken from actual history and even from growing up and just seeing images from the Jim Crow South, often of these groups of, uh, of white party goers who were standing beneath a tree looking directly at the camera and one of my ancestors is burned um, in effigy in the, in the background uh, and hanging. Um, and for the character in the book and in the show, it's a catalyst. You know, the main character of the show, Cora, has kind of given up on many things. She's lost faith in this idea of, of a good life, of a life period, either through the abandonment uh, by her mother that she feels or just through being born into the condition of American slavery. And so I felt like it was important to show this very extreme act because it's the catalyst that makes her decide, you know what, I can't give up, this is too much. And yet I wanted to find a way to unearth something in the image that would be additive to the experience of witnessing one of these acts. Um, And one of those ways was to give this character, Big Anthony, voice. Typically when we see these events um, in a show or a movie dealing with the subject matter, the person is only responding to acute trauma. They're either yelling out in pain or they're begging for their life. And I thought, no, this guy has full possession of himself. And so he's going to, one, address the, the people um, like himself who are for, forced to witness the enslaved and say, uh, I think he says, no more masters, no more slaves to them. And then he says directly to uh, Randall, uh, the plantation owner and brutalizer, God damn you, God damns you. Um, but then I wanted to go even one step beyond that. You know, I thought it was, I thought it was, they say you should walk a mile in someone's shoes. I thought it was very important, again, to both give agency to this character and to give him a presence. Because oftentimes we have this disassociative experience because we're, we don't have to identify with that person. Um, we don't have to understand what it would be like to be that person. And we don't acknowledge that they are witnessing this thing that is happening. Um, this idea of witnessing is very present in the show. And in that first episode, anytime an act of brutality happens, there's this young boy, we call him Hezekiah. Nobody ever mentions him by name, but he's always there as a witness. Um, 
the next morning after the first. He's, the, he's the young boy who's watching the next morning. Yeah. He's always watching. And even when the Randall brother has the heart attack, he's walking on the path. He's always there. He's not, not the angel of death, but he sort of bears witness to death always. Um, but I wanted to go even one step further and embody this character. And so we set up uh, this POV shot where even amidst this, uh, in the middle of this horrific act, as opposed to allowing us to then go, okay, that is past, we have to go inside and understand that this, this man, my ancestors, these people who endured these things, they saw all this. Um, because I think so, so much of making the show for me was about forcing myself um, to acknowledge that these things happened and that they didn't happen to an inanimate object. They didn't happen to a figurative person. They actually happened to my ancestors. Now, here's where I'll be honest. Uh, so sometimes these, these images, I'm straining to take them to this place where I think they have something to say that's beyond uh, the literal. And then you run up against the logistics of making a film or making a TV show. You know, 116 days, you're doing six pages a day. There's only so much you can figure out. Because what I wanted to do was, you oftentimes notice the camera sometimes is, it's almost like up and away from people. It's almost like in this disembodied, disassociative state. To me, that was the, the effect trauma can have on a person and a human being. So I wanted to take that POV and then have it rise and have it just float above and just sort of like just, ah. just really bear witness to all these things. But then one, I couldn't move fast enough on the day because despite how intellectually rigorous I thought I would be in this process, this one got to me. You know, there was no blood on set, no fire, you know, the, the actors on the stunt rig. And yet this one got to me because we were in the state of Georgia. We were standing on an actual plantation. There was a tree behind me that I knew had bared witness to these acts. And I also ran up against, I didn't want this, this man's soul to come up and then look back and see himself. I thought that would be too horrific. And so we just left it at the, the, the static POV. But, but I wanted to figure out, you know, I was straining against the process to figure out how can I take the image to even one more step and that's one of the one one of the few in the show that uh, I feel like I, I just never never got there. Uh, I don't, but I uh, but I didn't know what I was uh, what it could have also been. It was uh, a very powerful, powerful, powerful moment. And that was shot. Um, you, I mean, did you guys storyboard that? Did you? Yeah, we shot listed the the first, second, and last episodes uh, of the series for anybody who's seen it. So, Georgia, South Carolina, and Mabel. Um, but then we just ran up against time, and and so we couldn't shot list or, or board anything else. We storyboarded the action sequence in Indiana Winter, but otherwise everything was kind of either get together on the weekend and plan some things out or get there on the day, watch the actors uh, and plan some things out. Uh, but that one we shot listed. Um, but unfortunately, as we began working on that day, we did it all in one day, uh, the James had the shot list and I was just trying to make sure everybody was okay. And obviously you and James just worked together on those shot lists. And, yeah, yeah. And from a point of the camera or really the story? Uh, both, both. We, we talked a bit about the, the story. In, in this case, with this episode in particular, there's kind of a couple stories we're telling. You know, we're, we're very much sort of from Core's perspective, but then we had this omniscient camera, you know, almost like, again, because so much of this, and this episode is one of the few that is very fact-based in its depiction of the world um, that we're covering in the show. 
And so we almost have this omniscient observer um, kind of uh, uh, film language that we wanted to, to conjure. Um, and then it was just about, you know, visually, how do we capture the landscape? Um, because Mark Freeberg, our production designer, had built this uh, slave quarter from scratch. Um, we were filming on an actual plantation. The plantation house still existed, of course, because people get married there. But the, uh, the actual grounds where the enslaved live, those things have been erased. And so we rebuilt that from scratch. And just walking that space, I felt like there was that there had to be this act of bearing witness to this community, to this place that my ancestors lived. So that was sort of the third language in the episode. Uh, we're we're going to get back to underground. I want to jump back now to Moonlight um, and sort of, again, talk about how these shorts, if I, if I think about sort of taking three of these shorts, um, I think it was um, Tall Enough, which if you told me you were 5'8", I, I, now I'm understanding Tall Enough a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 little Brown Boy and My Josephine, you put it together, there's a lot of what you're sort of dealing with in Moonlight. And uh, it's kind of unbelievable. But I just want to talk about camera and about um, this incredible ability, especially the, the romance of things and how your camera and how you're able to elicit an emotion so powerful with mm -hmm. the lens uh, and with the language of cinema. And I, I, I go to the, in the third sequence of Moonlight and it's a, a scene that I remembered so well and went back to it. Now I use a steady cam a lot myself. So mm -hmm. I was like really profoundly aware of a little bit of this, but, uh, but it's when, uh, when Black is going to see Kevin mm -hmm. uh, for the first time after, you know, a decade. Uh, and it's the diner scene. And if I'm correct, it was like a, this beautiful, long steady cam shot that was, I mean, it was mostly still and mm -hmm. then walking behind him and mm -hmm. then one insert, uh, and then this incredible shot, which is not that it's not like a sophisticated shot of, Oh my yeah, God, yeah. the pyrotechnics of it, but the storytelling of it is unbelievable. And, and the longing mm -hmm. that the viewer has, uh, please. Get together, and then it—the whole sequence ends with this other very, you know, thing that you do that I want to talk about is Kevin looking directly into the lens mm. uh, and recognizing uh, Black or Sharon. Uh, so you can just—if you remember that sequence. Um, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I do. This, this was actually the sequence that uh, when you were you nominated for DGA that you put up the five minutes, and this was the sequence that I put up this five minutes. Um, one, because not a lot happens in it. You know, it's different between plot and story. It's a very big story moment um, for, the, for the show, for the film. Um, but it was something deliberate. We, you know, we were building this character over the course of these three moments in his life. And in the first chapter, we cover maybe a couple weeks, you know, in the second chapter, we cover maybe a week. And then the third chapter, we cover, we cover a couple days. So we're reducing the way time passes. We're reducing the amount of time, which means the duration of shots is increasing. The duration of moments is increasing. And I knew that getting to that diner, the entire film had to slow. The way we relate time had to slow. So those two shots are very intentional. Also too, you're always looking for, not always, but sometimes I'm looking for a very oblique way to sort of communicate that now the language has changed or the way time is, uh, is being relayed has changed. And that shot is the longest shot uh, in the film. When he gets out of the car, he's putting, we, we see him, which my, my old boss called the shoe leather. You should never use shoe leather um, as art. But I thought there was something very beautiful about him getting there and he's prepping, he's prepping. The audience doesn't know where are we, what are we? 
yeah, I remember that guy called from that place, but we only saw a little sliver of it. And then as he's walking, I remember in the script, because with, with that film, you know, I'm the screenwriter and the director. And I think that's a way of communicating with James in particular. You know, I wrote the idea of his shoulders, you know, because I knew we wanted to film it from behind. The idea of the way his shoulders are bouncing, the weight of his shoulders, the way he's breathing. And so we sit there, we sit there, he starts walking. And then we're going with him, going with him. And it's interesting, you mentioned the bell, because the bell didn't come to me until we were until we were packing up out of the location. I looked up and there was a bell there. And I thought, oh, that'll make a lovely snap. And so we just we just shot it off. Um, but he gets there, he walks in the door, he opens it. And then this is, you know, some of the stuff that we carried into the Underground Railroad. I'll, I'll tell you a few, few secrets of how we did some things. But, you know, James and I were termites, you know, we're just looking for wood and we just want to gnaw on it. Because we actually set up two cameras for when Black walks in uh, and walks to that diner. Um, we, it was a single camera show, but we did two angles of it. And I thought for some reason being profiled to him was going to be the hero shot because he walks in and then he walks by one row and he walks directly alongside the counter. So we have a shot where we're tracking with him in profile alongside the counter. But what we end up using is horizontal to him, but we're just dollying left and right. Yeah. And what happened was we chose that diner over an, another diner that I thought was more picturesque. But James uh, was right. There was something about how narrow the aisles were in this one that, you know, you're talking about intimacy or, or restraint or repression. These guys are going to have to bump up against each other, you know, if we film in this place. And we filmed that movie in 25 days, so there wasn't a lot of planning. In this scene in particular, we did over two nights. Everything that happens from the parking lot uh, to them getting back in the car was all filmed in two consecutive nights. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of time. And so we kind of just like, we got there, we set up the horizontal camera and we just kept discovering the first time Trevante walked in, it timed up so well that he sat down and we were doing this Ho Shao Shen caress. And then we grabbed Andre and we're like, bro, can you slip through here? And he's like, yeah, I can slip through here. And we just started doing, we did like three takes of it, this dance. And the one that's in the show is the one that works. Uh, but we got it. We got it. And what it was about was just slowing down the way the audience processes time because now this guy isn't going to be, be able to evade or duck or dodge or, or, or con condense this amount of time. He has to sit there. The way I described to James and Javante and Andre was he is going to have to sit there and look him in the face. That's the whole point of this whole sequence. And those two shots was a way of getting the audience prepped for the fact that all this is going to be about is he's got to sit there and look this guy in the face. Well, that's fascinating because truth of it is, I was not aware of the thought of your slowing down time, but mm -hmm. I was so aware of being in, in Black's time. I didn't mm -hmm. want to cut away. I didn't want to jump to the door opening. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see him brush his hair. And I mm -hmm. wanted to see, and, and then there are two elements in there. The, when you were saying I'm on their back, you mm -hmm. use that a lot, I think. Yeah. In, in Underground, you use it with many things. I, I think the first time I saw it was Juan, I think, and mm -hmm. I think there's one point where he's dealing and we're on his back. And it was the first time I was aware. I didn't see it in, uh, in uh, Medicine for Melancholy. Mm -hmm. uh, can you just talk about uh, what that conveys to you? Because you're very close. I'd love to know the lenses that you, I mean, is it it's a wider element probably? And Yeah, well, we're typically on a, a 35 or a 50, depending on the, the lens, the lens sensor, you know, it can change, but we're typically in that range. So it's not, it's not an extremely wide lens. 
we use some wider lenses on Underground Railroad, um, but not so much on on Moonlight. My favorite filmmaker was Claire Denis, and she has and she has she makes these proclamations, and one of her proclamations is that the fifty millimeter is the truest lens. You know, that's something about the fifty millimeter or the traditional thirty five millimeter. Uh, two perfect, three perfect is like that's the way the human eye sees. You know, it's the most humanistic lens. And so, you know, again, I'm still this film school guy. So whenever, whenever I I, I have an itch, or whenever I can't figure something out, you just throw on the fifty. Um, and so we're, we're usually in that. And uh, a film that I saw in person uh, at the Telluride Film Festival uh, was Gus Van Sant's Elephant, and uh, and that film is largely a series. Of, uh, of these shots roving uh, behind characters. And you would assume it would create a distance, but I think in that film, especially because they're moving through such confined spaces, I, I just always feel like it helps you identify, you know, you're, you're, you're moving through the world with that person, as opposed to being on someone's face and moving through, you can't see where there's something almost, I think a bit nihilistic about being on someone's face, leading them, you know, in this dolly shot. Because you kind of can't see where they're going, you kind of can't see what they're seeing. You're kind of just seeing them, and that's interesting um, in small doses. But I'd much rather see the world these people inhabit because that's how you get confidence on how the characters change and how they change. Yeah, and it really feels that way, and it also feels uh, very intimate. It's certainly in in underground. I mean, it, it it's weird how it's intimate, right? It's so okay. weird how it's intimate. It's yeah, weird it's and, intimate. and you don't see the face, which I've said to actors many times. Mm -hmm. Actually, there's there's more power in seeing you from the back. Than there was mm -hmm. necessarily in seeing your face at that moment, but the it, the whole way it's used and it's used for different emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, if with Ridgeway when we're behind him, I'm just scared. Less. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. And, uh, and yet there are moments with other characters that, and even joyously, I want to I want to go with them. I want mm -hmm. uh, so it's a it's a very powerful thing. Um, and um, and then the other thing is. The moment in Kevin uh, when he uh, looks him directly mm -hmm. into the lens, which I know is also the mother scene in Moonlight, is mm -hmm. I think the first time. And then it, you've used it quite a bit and in very different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you've used it with someone looking at us, mm -hmm. uh, somebody uh, looking at each other, the lovers, uh, you know, Fawny and and uh, yeah, Tish, yeah, and Tish in in the prison scene, which is kind of unbelievable piece of acting on both their parts. Uh, but then you've also used it, I noticed in Underground, um, like Miss Lily scene, I think it's Miss Lily is her name, the, mm -hmm. the one who's talking about sterilization with mm -hmm. Bessie, uh, mm -hmm. Cora. Uh, mm -hmm. And oh, Lucy, it's Lucy. only one side, what's her name? Yeah, my homegirl, Megan Boone. So Megan Boone went to college with uh, myself and Adela Romanski. She's a Florida Stater too. I'm glad I got to work with her finally. Uh, That's right. We, we, well, we, we, what a we, gift we, you gave her to have to play that horrific human being. Yeah, uh, we, we give Megan Boone the shot. That's right. That was day one. But in, in that, it's just on her side. Mm -hmm. Cora's side is traditional. I mean, it, it is, and the other thing. So if you can just talk a little bit about how you use that and... Um, yeah, it's interesting too. You talk about my Josephine. I, I I thought we didn't start doing this until after Medicine for Melancholy, but there is a shot in my Josephine where uh, where where Adela is uh, is uh, is sitting at the register, and the camera just very slowly pushes in on her. She's making this origami. She sets it down on the counter. I, I she looks up it. Yeah. yeah, I forgot that we had done it uh, in that film, but uh, when when they told me you were watching, I decided I should watch it as well. Um, you know, it's uh, it's something that I go back and forth on. You know, I, I never want to develop a crutch, and so 
I thought it was very successful in Moonlight, but it came out of a very organic place uh, in Moonlight. And there was the scene that you mentioned with Naomi Harris. And some of this is just good timing uh, because we didn't do those shots until Naomi showed up. Then she famously shot five weeks. She showed up in week four and uh, she did all her work in three days. And I think because of that, our senses were heightened. We only had three days with her. And our, our senses were heightened. And so I kept trying to understand if this character is myself and Terrell, the audience needs to feel what we felt. And uh, the first time we did the direct camera on that film uh, was the scene between uh, uh, Paula and, uh, and Sharon when he comes home from school and, and she asks him for money. That was the first time we did it. Um, and then it was, it was, there was something about it that was so visceral that it would just pop into my head and, and we would do it. Every time we did it, it was unplanned. Um, and unfortunately, which was sprung on the actors. But I think in that movie and all their faces, when, the, when we cut to those shots, you can see almost this like this disassociative, I don't know, just, just something very pure about the expressions um, on their faces. They're almost uh, apart from the scene that they're spliced into, um, but there's something timeless about them, um, which is why we always shoot them at 48 frames. Um, and then going on to Bill Street, I personally think we use them too much in Bill Street, uh, with the exception of the shot uh, of Sharon, of Regina King's character in Puerto Rico, of that one was very appropriate. And then in this one, uh, because we Can we go back for a second? Why did you think you used it too much? When you watch it now, it feels... Um, or... it, uh, the, the, there's, there's sometimes there's, there's so much about uh, Tish and Fani uh, gazing into each other's eyes. And I'm not sure what I'm seeing there when I come back to those shots. Um, so it's just me being critical of, of my own shit. Um, yeah, I feel like we use them uh, a bit too much, especially because we don't use them for the same duration. When, when Sharon Rivers gets to Puerto Rico, that's a very particular thing. And also, you know clearly who she's looking at. And you kind of, by understanding what she's seeing and the disappointment in there, you kind of know so much about that character and what's going to happen over the next 10 minutes. I can't say that the same, um, I can't say the same for the other uses of it um, in that film. That's just me picking apart my own show, which I think is important uh, to do because coming into this film, it, uh, this show, excuse me, Underground Railroad, it made us really push and interrogate why are we doing this shot um, right now? And case in point with, uh, with Megan as Miss Lucy, um, I, I didn't want to embody her. I felt like it was okay to embody Cora in that moment, but I didn't want to embody her. Um, I didn't feel like that character had earned um, that right. And so that was the choice to do it only on one side. Great. Uh, so and going back to Beale Street for a second, and then I'm going to, uh, because I want to now jump to actors a little bit and then uh, possibly talk about casting too, but but just your actors and working with your actors. And when I was thinking about Bill Street and I thinking, you know, how many actors they're like, please, even if you're, I'm really close to the mat box, find a place for my actor to be because, and these are deeply emotional scenes. Mm -hmm. So for these actors, they're just looking directly in the lens. The other actor is just doing the voice from somewhere or. Yeah, that's it. Set that up and how do you help them in that process? I will say I try to not do those shots or we try to not do those shots when there's dialogue, when there's a scene, you know, that they kind of have to be almost just um, an expression or an invocation of some 
kind of emotion or the absence of emotion most often uh, when we do them. You know, Naomi and Ashley Sanders in Moonlight, God bless them because I don't know how they did that. And that was also um, on the spot. The good thing is now the actors kind of expect it uh, when they sign up for the, for the show. Uh, you know, Barry of, Jenkins. Uh, yeah, but, but there typically isn't dialogue on the other side. In the Underground Railroad, we did do it um, uh, in the in the middle of the love scene um, or the, the sort of build up to the love making between Cora and Royal. They are doing the lines um, off screen, and it's challenging. You know, I'm not going to lie. Uh, we we never do those things when it's the only coverage of the scene. And I think the actors understand that too. We 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 honestly only do them after we've covered the scene. That way they know, you know, this is this is not that, you know, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Right. Because in Beale Street, obviously, that's a uh, especially the scene where he says, I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. I'll be home. I mean, that was that's a heavy dialogue scene between them. That so, so I kept thinking, is he saying that to a camera? No. So that's the only time that we use the uh, the Interatron. We use the uh, the setup that. um that, uh, that my man, why am I blanking? It's been a long day. I've been talking all day. Uh, <laughs> documentary filmmaker, somebody in the chat box knows who I'm talking about. Uh, James actually was a loader for him um, on one of his oh. commercials. Um, and so James got to understand how you build the Interatron. So, so they can see each other and they're not directly across from one another, but they are speaking directly to the land. That's the only time we brought in the Interatron. Great. So let's go to casting for a second. And, uh, uh, the actors that you work with and the incredible performances that you get. Uh, mm -hmm. Francine Maisler is a dear friend of mine and somebody yeah. I've worked with before. And I called Francine because I knew she did Underground with you. Uh, and I was like, so tell me about Barry. And she went, he's just a genius. It has nothing to do with me. He's the genius. Uh, <laughs> and I went, well, that doesn't help me in, a, <laughs> in an interview format. But I would love to hear your process because so many of your main actors are, it's not like they're the most verbal characters in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so much is expressed, which is the truth of cinema anyway. So much mm -hmm. is expressed, you know, in silence and mm -hmm. in their faces. And some faces hold and some faces don't. Uh, mm -hmm. I never quite know what that is. Somehow you do. And maybe it goes to the thing you said at the very beginning, which is it's just a vibe. It's yeah. just something that I get. So, uh, does that translate in casting also for you? Uh, it, it does. You know, again, so much of this goes back to uh, just being a, a film student and having that first experience where the process, the craft seemed beyond me and then doing whatever I could to do my, create my own course and catch up. Uh, one of the books I read at that time was Walter Murch's um, In the Blink of an Eye. Um, and there's something about just this very concrete uh, philosophy about the connection between the audience um, and the character or the actor um, that is broken, you know, with these blinks, this idea of, of eye contact, the eyes being the window into the soul, that's always stayed with me. Um, part of it, because growing up, I remember just being always this kind of silent observer in my own life, um, mm -hmm. but also understanding so much about people just by, by watching them and, unfortunately, by looking them uh, in the eye. And so when I'm casting, you're right, I was just looking for this kind of like I vibe, you know, um, and sometimes that vibe is enough. You know, Sheila Atim, who plays Mabel in the show, never auditioned uh, for the part because we didn't have sides. You know, we, that, was, that was one of the few episodes that we didn't have written, you know, as we began uh, or as we got close to production because it's shot 
was like the second episode to shoot, but the vibe was so clear. The vibe was so clear and, and just something about our conversation. I was like, you know what, this is going to work. And part of that too was, you know, building um, a set environment that's very, that's very open and the word safe, of course. Um, but where this sort of exploratory sort of energy is very present and is the DGA, uh, Liz Tom, our first AD was amazing. I'm sorry to curse. She was amazing, amazing, amazing and helping create that space. And so when I'm casting, especially because, you know, the DP is my best friend and the producers are my best friends and the editor, when she comes to set is my best friend, I'm looking for people who can kind of slip into this community that we've, we've built that's almost as important as the technique, as the craft, as as how gifted the actor is. Because I I believe that you know you know there's a there's a threshold I feel like a, of performance, and I think everyone has like this floor, you know. And so you get all these tapes in, and Francine's great. And you're gonna get you know, you're only gonna see people who have a certain floor. It's like, but where's the ceiling, you know? And how does so how is someone gonna reach that ceiling? Is it technique? Or is it vibe? Is it, is it this communal sort of feeling? I know it's not like a hippie right now, but it really is how these things happen. We bring people into these worlds we create and they can become their best selves. They can be, they can give their best performance. Well, certainly Mabel, I, I can understand that actress being cast just from, uh, mm -hmm. she has the most extraordinary, powerful face uh, mm -hmm. and her, the power of her body. It, it is mm -hmm. kind of unbelievable what she mm -hmm. projects. Uh, but Equally as unbelievable as this uh, young actress, Cora. So mm -hmm. just tell me about how you ended up casting her. And then I just want to talk about two scenes with her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tuso, again, Franny. Uh, I can't call her Franny in public. <laughs> she told me, she said, Eric calls me Franny. Yeah, uh, uh, Francine just cast a really wide net. And, uh, and Tuso's tape came through. I watched it. And she just happened to be in the States for the first or second time. And... Uh, and, you know, Francine put us together. We got um, we got dinner. And again, just sitting across from this person, especially knowing that this character at the beginning of her journey doesn't have full possession of herself. And so she needs to express things as much through body language and through eye contact or eye evasion. And yet you still need to be able to understand um, what she's feeling, um, these things that she can't verbally expressed because of the condition of her time, the audience still needs to feel them. And also too, it's not a book and I'm not using the interior voice. So I need to be able to show these emotions that are beneath the surface. And it was just really clear um, that she could do it. We've been talking about Bill Street. Uh, Bill Street was in release while we were casting the show. And so Stefan James came in and did an audition uh, with, um, with, with Tuso and another young woman, uh, who was the runner up for the part, uh, really amazing young African-American actress who is going to be a major movie star, uh, very soon. Um, and Tuso, she just, in the room, she just did it, man. She just did it. She just did it. And, uh, it was important to me to have someone who could communicate non-verbally, but also who could withstand 116 days, uh, of this. Well, she did. It was also amazing how she could look so different at times. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, how we yearned for her smile and when yeah. that would happen, but also how old she would look sometimes. I mean, that, that moment with Ridgeway when she's having to walk and we see her just, it, it's like, I'm not sure it was the same actress. It was just a complete metamorphosis. That she I'll tell you, it was the same actress. And thankfully the show, we shot it out of sequence 
And thankfully, that's like kind of the worst part of the journey for her. And then she gets to Indiana and she's much more healthy and young looking uh, because we shot the Tennessee episodes last. And so by then the process had just worn all of us down. <laughs> but, uh, well, well, that was a good, uh, uh, for her at least, that was a, a good thing. Um, so the two scenes that I want to talk to uh, you about with her, um, and I know these scenes have been brought up because they're they're unbelievable, both in how you shot it, but also the operate the operator in these two scenes to me, um, which are the scene when Ridgeway tells her about Lovey, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and it's almost like he's provoked. I mean, I don't know if that was what it was, but by her bringing up the mother, and then you know Joel does an amazing moment in his silence. Uh, mm-hmm. It looks like he just made a decision. Uh, I'm going to be as cruel as I possibly can in the most banal way possible. I'm just Mm -hmm. going to do this. And then there's that beautiful shot that you just stay. uh, I mean, you you start on him and you come to her Mm -hmm. and then you hold on her for a while. And then it just feels so intimate. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, the operator sort of moves away and it goes to Mm -hmm. Ridgeway and then comes back and pulls focus to her. Mm-hmm. Is that designed that way, or is that a three-character piece? In other words, that the Steadicam operator is it's, in that scene also. The Steadicam operator is in that scene also, and our Steadicam operator on the show, this kid named Jared Morgan, who uh, I nicknamed Possum, uh, just because he was so good at, at just getting in and out uh, of these moments with the actors. Um, again, you know, it was a lot of show to shoot, and so we didn't have a lot of time to do things. And this was the day where we got backed up uh, we had a bit of an emergency on set when we were filming the big wide shot um, as the as the wagon train comes in and pulls to the sides. We did that first. And then it was just about, again, show versus tell. I knew at this point in the story, if there was going to be an act of brutality, you know, we weren't going to cut to it. We weren't going to show it. We were going to allow Ridgeway to do the telling. And you're right. He's using, he's using his voice. He's using his narr- narration almost like a knife. You know, he's just sticking in and kind of digging in the wound. And... By that point, again, these are the last episodes that we filmed, you know, Tuso and Joel were just like, they were just in. I mean, they were just in. And so after we got the why we did that first, I did another shot where we had uh, we had Possum, excuse me, we had Jared Morgan, the steady came up, just drift through the funeral procession that's coming because I felt it was important to sort of, you know, Ridgeway's talking about the Trail of Tears. We don't have... We don't really deal with the story of Native Americans in the show, but this is one of the few times when Ridgway very clearly in his idea of American exceptionalism and his idea of imperialism, colonialism is talking directly about them. They're walking the path that these Native Americans were forced to walk this trail of tears. And yet we have this group of white uh, settlers who have now been beaten by the land. They are walking back along the path. They are reversing course. So we did that. And then I knew, okay, cool. He's going to tell this story. And as we were blocking it, there's not much, there's no blocking at all. You know, he walks back over to the wagon and then he's provoked because Cora in the book is very sassy with the internal voice. You know, she's talking a lot throughout the book. She's a very strong voice. She doesn't get to externalize it very often. And this was a moment that she, she, did, definitely. she does bite back and that provokes him. He goes, oh, you think your words have power? How about these words? And it was really wonderful to know that I could trust Jarrett. You know, I said, okay, cool. We'll maybe get four or five takes at it. But this one, you know, start on Ridgeway, hinge on him, and then just vibe with Tuso. Just vibe with her. And so, and I was really adamant in the beginning, 
myself and James, we were adamant as we were breaking out the show. I wanted to, as opposed to cutting to new information, cutting to new shots, to be able to create new shots. Because I felt like the longer we could extend moments in time, I think the more the audience would, again, walk a mile in these shoes of the characters. I think there's also this artifice going back to the Walter Murch, the blink of an eye. Whenever you create an incision, there's something less truthful about juxtaposing two pieces of time together. There's something very truthful. You know that for that moment, when, when, when Joel was telling that story, Tuso was reacting to that particular story. Um, and so we just set, like you said, the three people in the scene, there's Joel, Tuso, and Jarrett Morgan, our mm -hmm. operator. And, uh, and we trusted him and he trusted us that no, we don't need you to come back into the over. Just rock with her, you know, just vibe with her. Um, and there's a lot of shots in the show where it's just- um, it's Also, just his AC, his AC uh, too. Yeah, yeah, his AC was this kid- Because it, when that, that pull of that focus back to her is so, so say, exactly at the right moment. So James and I are sitting often uh, next to Warren and we're like kind of like tapping him on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. We're tapping him on the shoulder. And it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's there's, so <laughs> many, there's so many resources at play and it's, it's not a game, it's not a game. But when it's very fluid and elastic, it really can be. Uh, and, and everyone, you know, just talking about that episode, another, well, you tell me, what, what's the next scene you want to talk about? Well, the other, the other thing is Cora again. I mean, mm -hmm. because I was also, the depth of her emotion yeah. and hearing that story, it's as if it really did take place, that she didn't know by provoking him, he would go there. Mm -hmm. And just saying the name Lovey was, mm -hmm. uh, especially asking Homer, the whole thing. The other is Caesar in nine uh, mm -hmm. and the steady cam shot also uh, when first of all you go through the people and it's the one time I think that we're in a POV that she walks into her own POV. Oh that, that's uh, eight you're talking about eight yes yes yeah, eight, eight. yeah it's it's the railroad station um, mm -hmm. yes and then and then she goes to see Caesar on the tracks and then it's that moment that they have together uh, mm -hmm. where um, those beautiful lines uh, I, I wish I remembered exactly. I, I oh, the lines they say when they're dancing. She says, "How how long is this? How long is it going to last? As, said, as long as you long, need. Long as you need. As long as you need. Which feels like a direction you've given actors before. It's okay as long as you need. <laughs> but even though you know the lights about to go and you've <laughs> uh, got five more shots to do. To the detriment of the editors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that moment too. Uh, it's a three-person scene again. It's just you're kind of going around, but then he just uses his his massive shoulder to come back to her and it's just a sort of a beautiful choreographed uh very very simple shot yeah but emotionally so absolutely connected to mm -hmm. what she's doing and again those tears are these tears of longing and joy mm -hmm. and the other tears were these tears of enormous pain and guilt mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah, that that one kind of because that was very early in production. It actually was a different operator. Uh, Jared hadn't joined the show at that point. Um, I forget the other guy's name was with us for the first couple of weeks. Um, but that was that was just a, an act of necessity. You know, it was one of the few things that we shot way out of sequence because that that location is also where all the underground tunnels are built. It was at this rail museum that had a spinning platter where it would off it would load on these trains. They have their own internal uh, network of trains because for good reasons, you can't film on public commercial uh, railways. So we found a private one at this rail museum in Savannah, Georgia. And so Mark Freeberg had built 
all these uh, these tunnels above ground that we would send trains through for our sets. You know, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, South Carolina, all those stations are right there. Um, and yet I kept thinking, we got to do something with this platter. It's just too beautiful. We have to use it. And so Mark Freeberg gamed out. Oh, I think I can make this is where this is the arrival hall. And we got a billboard here. I was like, okay, cool, great. And then Aaron Pierre, the actor, was only with us for again the first three episodes, the first two, which is the first two we shot. And so we were losing him. And I thought, I've got to do something with this guy because I can already tell he and Tuso are really bonding. I've got to do something with this guy. This is where being the showrunner comes in handy. And so I just scratch off the scene. Uh, she's, she's there, she hears a voice, he's reciting words from the novelist's first novel, from Colson Whitehead's first novel, yeah. because it's about trains, and then she walks through this crowd of people, and there he is. And so I just scratched it off, wrote it down, we got there on the day, and then we had all these background extras, and we hadn't done, since day one, we hadn't done all these direct-to-camera to shots, and this is before we started doing the, por the portraits in bulk, but there was something very, this idea of communal witnessing was already asserting itself. And so I thought, oh, we're pushing through where her, everyone's looking at us and then she steps on. And this is where, again, it was such an elastic process. We get there and on the night, our gaffer, uh, Kiva Knight, um, this is the logistics, everybody working together. You know, Liz Todd, our first AD, is like, hey, you know, we're getting to OT. It's really early in the production. We maybe don't want to go into OT. Do you still need all these backdrops when they're dancing? James and Kiever, our gaffer, overhear this. And James goes, oh, you know, it'd be dope. What if we just couldn't see back there? What if all the lights fell off? Kiva had rigged up this whole ring of lights above. And we all went, oh, okay, cool. She walks out, we're behind her. Here's one oh, behind shot helps us, we're behind her, we're behind her. And then we cut around, boom, lights go out, nobody's there. And so Liz gets to wrap all the background extras. <laughs> gets to wrap all the background extras. And then you have this halo, it's just the two of them. You know, and all that came just out of necessity. Um, and then we got out there and once again, um, even with this guy, I think his name was Mike, I'm so sorry, brother blanking on your name, it was like 100 days versus 16 days, the first camera operator. Um, and then it was just the three of them doing a dance. And part of that was about intimacy. I don't, I want to get out there with them, but I don't want to be inside, you know, what it is they're doing. Um, and that was how the I thing just, I so wanted it to not be a dream. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Caesar live. Oh, God, I love yeah, it. No. The, the okay. crazy thing was then we had to figure out how to back into that a hundred days later when we did the actual hub and I had to keep it in the back of my head because we backed that scene on day like 18 and we didn't shoot her actually going into the hub until like maybe day 102. So um, the, the, the bearing witness and the gazes and the, the, the tableaus that you did, that was all as you're shooting your sort of that's not in the script you when you're no. writing this in the writer's room you guys never talked about wouldn't no. it be interesting um yeah. and did you discover how to use them in the editing room for the most part or as it progressed did you start to realize i this is exactly the point i need this the only ones i knew was as she puts the little girl on the hand car and she takes that gun out of her boot I knew she was gonna walk back towards him. He would be talking and we would see all these faces. That I knew very early on. I just knew it. And we weren't, I knew we weren't gonna film that to like the last, the last third of the shoot. And so as you're collecting them, 
I knew we're gonna we're gonna see. I kept saying all these faces. I didn't know how long the sequence would allow itself to be. Um, but then the group shots, the group shots. The first one we did was um, this one at the train station, but it kind of doesn't count because it's it's moving. It's not really a portrait. But we were in this cotton field, this massive cotton field um, that we were filming for the first episode, and we did that after we had bagged all the footage of that episode. We went to an exterior cotton uh, cotton field and filmed that. And the sun was setting and just, I was looking at the background and it, it had been a hard day, but everybody was, there was this jovial quality. Everybody just looked very proud and resolute. And I thought, oh, okay, we have to stop. And I say, James, what, what's the best way to get everybody in this? He's like, oh, let's just go here and we'll just drift left and right. Um, and we did it. And all I said to the background, this is what I repeatedly would say, was just, you know, show me yourself, you know? You know, take the energy that you that you built today and just show me yourself. They're amazing faces. And again, if you go back to your earlier work, I noticed mm -hmm. in Medicine for Melancholy, there's mm -hmm. a beautiful scene where the two of them are going to the Museum of uh, African uh, mm -hmm. Diaspora. And there's that whole wall of faces as they're mm -hmm. going up the stairs. There's just this, and and I think the may I wait, I'm not sure, but one of them just starts touching the faces and you go, yeah. slow that down. I want to see all of those faces. So obviously in your head somewhere was the, the faces of both your ancestors, but in this case, it was the faces of the world that they were inhabiting. Um, yeah, I think part of this for me is, is documenting the, the, you know, I always quote that book, The Lives and Souls of, of Black Folks, um, because even in medicine, that mural just happened to be there, you know, because again, that movie we made with a crew of five people, $15,000. And so again, we're termites, you know, what here is interesting that we can grab. And as we were wrapping up that staircase, that scene on the staircase, we realized, oh my God, isn't this beautiful? Can we shoot it? Will they let us? Know, let's just shoot it. And so we just did one pass um, of that shot. It's, you know, this is cool. I haven't thought of that in a long time. It's sort of like the very first version of uh, some of these group portraits that we did in Underground Railroad. Um, the connection between them didn't, didn't really occur to me, but I guess it just comes out of this yearning, especially because when I first started this in film school, the craft was killing me. You know, I had things to say, but I couldn't understand the camera. I couldn't understand the light. I just couldn't, I couldn't make it see what I saw or capture what I wanted to capture. And I did feel like what I wanted to capture was was worthwhile and was beautiful. And so maybe now, sometimes I think um, there's even an overcompensation um, of craft. I'm like a constructivist in some way. Um, but this idea, this very simple idea that the, the, the faces, the souls, the images of people who look like me are beautiful and very worth uh, exploring and excavating and cataloging and documenting and dramatizing and, and, and rhapsodizing, um, that's always been a driving force. And it's also as a driving force, as you described earlier, as a young boy, where mm -hmm. you looked at people in the eye. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't necessarily probably people who just looked like you, but mm -hmm. uh, you were still looking in the eye. So there was something in you to sort of say, and it allows us, everybody, uh, to be able to look uh, somebody mm -hmm. in the eye because they're mm -hmm. looking you at, right at you in the eye. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, uh, so there are a couple of, there's so many other things I wanted to get to, but I want to get to one specific thing mm -hmm. to sort of get to the end. But before that, just um, you, you, you keep referring to it as the show and then your films. 
Uh, I just want very quickly to get from you this perception of uh, <clears throat> this was for uh, a television set mm -hmm. uh, and you've made movies. And at any point while making this, were you aware of that? Uh, did you do things that you wouldn't have done? Uh, because it doesn't feel that way to me. Mm -hmm. I've never thought of the medium as a different uh, construction. It's a different viewing uh, habit, very different viewing habit. But the construction of it, I've never felt. I think it's cinematic art. And you certainly brought it to the greatest height, I think, that's been on television ever. Uh, oh, thank you, Mel. Uh, absolutely. Part of that is also pacing, not only just the visuals, just the pacing of it, how you did it, uh, the enormous patience that that you are expecting your audience to have. Mm -hmm. They didn't buy a ticket and they're sitting there and they really can't leave. Yeah. Uh, it's all of that that makes it such a provocative piece. But um, just wanted to ask you if you thought of it as a different. Um, no, no, I, I didn't. Uh, we approached it from a craft standpoint. We approached it craft wise the same way uh, with the exception of there were certain wide lenses or wide sort of escapes that we, we had to be very aware of what we were doing just because of the size of the screen. Um, but otherwise, no, we approached it the same way. Now that's from a craft standpoint, from a story standpoint, we tried to be very diligent. You know, we had a writer's room, you know, we tried to be very diligent about the episodic characteristics, you know, of television. And we tried to respect that, you know, with a few sort of formal deviations that we felt like were worth taking, you know, for the sake of the story, uh, for the sake, uh, of the characters, but no, we we saw it. We saw it as the same as, as anything that we that we've ever done, you know. Um, and and I think that part of that is, you know, I've seen some really wonderful things like in this medium, you know, some extraordinary things. You know, one of my favorite films by Claire Denis was made for television. This very short film called U.S. Go Home was a part of an, an omnibus series. Um, uh, and so and so, I, I do think there's. I like you. These barriers between the two the two mediums. I don't even, I don't even think referring to them as different mediums um, is the way to go. I think because we didn't treat it differently either, the sound design or, or our, our aspirations from a sound standpoint, those are very much the same as anything that we would do in one of the feature films. Very much the same as if you walked into, um, you know, the the dome at the ArcLight, may it may RIP, but I think it's going to come back. Um, or on your, your television set with your headphones, you know, your laptop with your headphones. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other thing that, that, that I didn't even, we haven't had time to get into the sound design of this, especially underground. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, you've been playing around with sound design and sound is a very, uh, or, you know, your Nicholas work uh, and how mm -hmm. that's integrated. I mean, one of the things very quickly in the sound design, it seemed like, you know, the sort of organic sounds, the sounds of the crickets, the sound of the anvil, the sound of the ticking clock, the sound that always seemed to be in the same key. It reminded mm -hmm. me of there's times where I've walked with my headphones before and I've listened to a piece of music that I didn't really know. And somebody's car alarm is going, but I don't know, know this car was, alarm. This, this uh, was cool. And, this, and not, to, not to give COVID or the lockdown any positive thing, but Nick lives in New York. I live in L.A. Because of COVID, we tried working remotely. We're like, that can't work. So he moved to LA. His house was 10 minutes from the edit. And then his, his house was 10 minutes from the stage. And so there would be times when there would be a sound on the stage. And I would say, send that to Nick. I would leave the stage, go to Nick's place, 
we would then create, we would then take the orchestra and bend it to the key of the sound of the element from the next stage so, so these things could be in synchronicity so they could talk to each other. And I'll say what that came out of was just in trying to figure out how do I contextualize who these characters are? Their bodies were restricted, especially in the early episodes, but you can't do anything to restrict this in here. So what she hears is completely unrestricted, completely unrestricted, and it's a whole world of experience. So that was one of the really interesting ways that we felt like, oh, we can totally immerse the audience in the soundscape of the show. And between Annalie Blank, our, our mixer, and Matt Waters, them, them and Nick and Joy and, and, and Alex, they just had this really fluid way of just passing things around this 30-minute circle. It was 10 minutes here, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. I guess 20-minute circle. And we would just have fun just being like, oh, you know what, that anvil in episode five, yo, it's way at the top of episode nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will remix this thing and send it back. It was really, really, it's hard to say, describe anything as fun when it comes to the show, but it was really cool because it was driven exciting, by- Exciting to do it. It was exciting. Yeah. And it was driven by, this is what the world might sound like to her. This is a way to get the audience to really identify with her. Because it was seamless at times. And I couldn't tell, mm-hmm. or, am I listening to music? Am I listening to- the, in, and it didn't feel like, and even the crickets, I grew up in Texas, so I've heard mm. lots of crickets, uh, but they sounded that they would been treated at times. And it was just, uh, they were musical. It was it was pretty uh, stunning piece of sound design. Uh, yeah. Kudos to your whole team and everybody, but thank God they live nearby. And maybe you should just enforce that next time uh, on your next movie. You, just have to live, you, know, you must live 10 minutes from the soundstage. The what I wanted to uh, get at the end was for me was, um, and I, I hope it's not a spoiler for people, but I just would love for you to talk about uh, the end of nine mm-hmm. uh, because the end of nine was uh, 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 as, as, as one of the more powerful pieces of cinema experience I've ever had. Um, mm-hmm. It was really, I was by myself. I think I'd mentioned I was up in the country uh, I was watching that. I finished it and I took this very, very long walk in the woods. Um, but I'd love for you to talk about it because for me, what it was beyond the piece of cinema, when I was talking about rewriting American history and, mm-hmm. you know, as a much younger man in 1980, I remember reading Howard Zinn's uh, uh, A People's History of, Amer- of the United States. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, uh, we've, it's just been a mythology. It's all mythology. Uh, and it's, um, you know, history written by the victors. Uh, and it, it, it was the first moment in my life where I went, oh, we, we've not been taught the right history. And that was that first moment in my life of that. And then when Donald Glover's song came up, this is America, mm-hmm. it was like, this is the next history lesson for me. Mm-hmm. This was uh, an amazing history lesson that started with, you know, I mean, the whole journey, but in that sequence, mm-hmm. her going down and then all the images that sort mm-hmm. of played out before she got the gun. And even after shooting the illumination of these two children's faces. Mm-hmm. So you could just talk to us about yeah. that. Yeah, it was, um, it was, you know, part of it was planned and unplanned because because of that set, you know, it's all blue. You know, mo- you know, it had to be planned. It had to be shot design and shot listed. And for me, it was sort of a mirror of making the show um, itself. 
you know, which is so much of this history, especially as a kid who grew up in this country going to public schools, so much much of this history has been has been written, has been delivered, you know, has been framed through the prism of men like Ridgeway. You know, whether they were ruthless slave hunters or whether they were bigoted senators in the, in the Jim Crow South, you know, they have told us, you know, what this history is. And this character played so beautifully uh, and heinously by Joe Edgerton is just running at the mouth. He's just always constantly telling us, you know, what this, this, this country is. And the more you hear a thing, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if there's a void, you know, of experience or a void of knowledge, whatever's pushed into that void can sometimes fill it, you know, and sometimes by default become fact. And so it felt important to me to one, to show, to juxtapose uh, these images against what these things this man is saying. And then as we were making the show, as we were editing the show, excuse me, um, you know, we just passed, um, you know, one year um, uh, to the day of the, the murder of George Floyd. And while we were editing the show, it was in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and all these protests were happening. And there were people who were taking the score from our previous film, A Bill Street Could Talk, and they were using it um, in these, these montages of protests um, all over the country. Um, the song that, that Nick had wrote for the score, Bill Street. And I thought, oh, isn't that, that odd? They're using, we made this music for this period piece and now they're bringing it into this very contemporary context. And it kind of got the wheels turning. I was like, oh, there's, it's kind of beautiful how this art can have this direct lineage, you know, to these other times. And I was thinking of a man like Ridgeway and then a man like Donald, you know, who's a friend of mine. And I thought, you know, who is going to have the last say on what this country is? And it was more about the video Donald made than it was about the song. And because I know him, I called him up. He had never let, allowed anyone to, to use the song before. And I explained to him that, that in making the show, I felt like I was, I was acting out. I was trying to live out this repurposing, this recontextualization, this reclaiming, you know, of this narrative that this character is preaching, um, this, this character Ridgeway. And then here comes Donald, you know, to have the last say, the final say. Um, and so I knew we were going to end with that song, or I knew I wanted to end with that song. So we go, we shoot the thing. Um, again, so much about this violence to me is like, what else can I unearth? And there's so much barbarity in the show. And there's always a witness. And I thought, yes, now in the book, she actually doesn't shoot him. But I thought, I need vengeance. You know, people at home watching this need vengeance. I can't as a black person make the show. And there is just got, because the vengeance is just, the retribution is just. So we're going to do this. And then I thought, but I can't revel in it. There, there is something lost even in this act. And so I thought, oh, these children are here. They have to watch this thing. And Tuso drops, Okora drops these tears in the aftermath. And I think the tears are not over this, this the, it's not over a pain for killing this man. It's that these children had to witness her committing this barbaric act, even if the act is just. So that's where those things came from. So we shoot the scene and we do the flashes on the kids. And then we do this big wide. And here I'm going to shout out our, our camera op again, this guy, Jared Morgan. So we do the scene. I'm working with a 10-year-old actor. And at this point, I've kind of got him figured out because when you work with an actor that young, it's kind of your gaming. And I, I knew that because I could hear him, Chase is going to bring it on this first take. 
but I can't let him know that I'm thinking of him. So we shoot the scene and Jarrett follows Cora back to the, the handcart. And I walk over to James. I have James' face up on the monitor next to me. I walk over to him. I go, hey, tell Possum to go back. And we're all wearing headsets. So he whispers in Possum's ear because we're outside the set to go back. It's unplanned. And, and, and we said in the show, which is called the long pan, the long pan. Exactly. Do it, but I don't want to cut. Because at this point, people know I don't want to have cuts. And so he just very fluidly comes off her. And then he's just doing his walk. And Chase just keeps going. And I'm like, oh, yes. And he's floating and he's floating and he's floating. And I'm sitting in my chair and I'm hearing, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. And I'm just willing this guy. I'm like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And he gets there as he chases, got the cheer, the tear in his real. I don't know if he thinks his buddy Joe is there or what, but he's doing it. And that thing crushes. And in my head, I heard, this is America. And, and Tommy, and, and when I tell that story, I, I sometimes feel... I was watching this documentary on HBO about the first black football players to integrate college football and this to integrate USC. And this guy's talking about being at this game. I think it's USC plays Alabama and everybody in the stand is just yelling at this guy and they're calling him all these names. And so he goes to return a kick and he just runs through everybody. He takes this thing all the way back to the house. He's like the only black player on the field. And this guy, 40 years later, is telling this story and there's tears in his eyes. And he goes, there's never been a greater hate in my heart than in that moment. And I think that this act of vengeance, some small part of it, some small part of it feels that way for me. And yet for so long, for so long, for so long, you know, we have not enacted these, these moments. And here's a work of fiction. And I did feel like this woman in the audience had to have this bit of satisfaction. Because it's not about everyone, it's just about this particular guy. And that was how the ending of the episode came to be. Yeah, and it feels about this guy. Mm -hmm. This guy does represent um, mm -hmm. a whole lot of things that we all need to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very, very powerful. And did you find a lot of the, like, uh, uh, Valentine, uh, the wife, uh, and the mm -hmm. cotton field image, and then that phenomenal image of everyone in the railroad station, mm -hmm. uh, their looks, was that in the editing room as you were starting putting this sequence together? It was in the editing room. I mean, I will say as we were filming them, I kept saying in my head, we're going to have a collection of images. I'm going to see, I'm, I'm just going to see as she's making that walk. And actually kind of like my old, my old commercial days, there's, there's two edits in that walk, but it's literally the same shot repeated twice. Because <laughs> I was like, I need to extend the length of this walk. So there's one shot that appears, literally it's the same shot appears twice to extend the amount of time so we can get more faces. Um, but no, it wasn't planned. We were at the train station and um, we had finished the day and we're just popping off all these individual portraits that make, make up the bulk of the gaze. And then I said to James, I think we need to do one in a group. And I was trying to scout out a place and he tapped me, he said, look. And he just he, uh, extended the camera up because everybody was milling about in the atrium. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's it. Those faces were unbelievable. I mean, those people. They were. Um, shout out to our uh, our regional background uh, background casting, and a lot of those folks are our advisors. You know, there are these people um, who reenact Gettysburg and the Civil War, and they have all these mus mu these uh, costumes and muskets. They're also black folks in the Deep South who preserve these traditions uh, of my ancestors, and they are dotted throughout um, that group. So, yeah, really wonderful work by those folks. 
Well, uh, there are so many things I could also talk about. We have used up our hour and a half, but uh, and the enormous appreciation. I do want to end it with a quote that I want to read, but I'm also just so pleased that you know um, Florida State put a dining hall in a in a football stadium, yeah. <laughs> and you would walk by and see those people. Uh, by the way, I played high school, so I, I'm not sure I had the same quality mm -hmm. of players, but uh, or coaches. Uh, mm -hmm. Our coaches actually, and it, it, it's indicative of our, of our job because it seems like you call a lot of audibles. That yeah. you have that, and that's why I was a quarterback. And actually, they hated the fact that uh, I didn't do what they did. <laughs> but I saw something better in front of me. Well, uh, that, that's where the magic happens, Tommy. That's where the magic happens. Well, that's clearly where your magic happens. And you clearly are someone who I think you work off other people's vibes, but I think so many people work off your vibes and there must be a safety that you illuminate and a daringness because you seem so open to the process, a process that is so grueling, that is so difficult to be opened with, that so uh, everything, all the entropy is there to try to stop you from being someone who's just, oh, I have an idea and you just do that idea. So I'm happy that you call audibles and that they gave it to the third string running back. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am going to read uh, this Toni Morrison quote. Uh, I think I've heard you say it and from her incredible speech. For any of you who have never read the Nobel Prize speech, you should read her speech. Uh, mm -hmm. But she said, uh, language uh, can never pin down slavery, nor should it yearn for the arrogance to do so. Its forces, its felicity, is in its reach toward the inevitable. She then later in that same speech said, we die. That may be the meaning of life, but we do but language. We do language. But that we do language. Be. That might be the measure of measure. our lives. Yep. And yep. I want to thank you, Barry, for using your language of cinema uh, to reach um, for that that is uh, inevitable. Uh, and uh, we are very fortunate uh, to have you as uh, a filmmaker on the horizon right now. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I know it's Lion King, but yeah. there are many after that. So, and I understand uh, why Lion King. It's a fascinating thing that you're doing this and I can't wait. And uh, thank you very, very much, Barry. Thank you, bro. I appreciate you. And thank you for everything you did. Um, you know what I'm talking about, man. Appreciate you, Tommy, man. Okay. Appreciate you. You bet. Thank you, Barry. And thank everybody who was there. That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Barry Jenkins. If you'd like to hear more from the Craft of the Director series, check out episode 274, which features director Bong Joon-ho discussing his extensive filmography with director Ryan Johnson. The Director's Cut is available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.